Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is October 5th, 2022, and I'm speaking with Joseph Malherrick, who is author of Free Market Socialists, European Emigres Who Made Capitalist Culture in America, 1918 to 1968. Thank you for joining us, Joseph. Thank you. In your book, you examine the impact of three Central European emigres on industrial society and consumer culture in mid-20th century America. Uh, the sociologist Paul Lazarsfeld, the architect Victor Grun, and the artist and designer Lasley moholy Naj. You also offer some observations on the relationship between capitalism and socialism in America. If we focus for the moment on one of those, Paul Lazarsfeld, what was his early experience of socialism and social research in interwar Vienna? For Lazarsfeld, uh, socialism and so social research were practically intertwined, really from the period of his youth. So he was born in Vienna in 1901, and his family was part of the middle-class Jewish intelligentsia that was really the driving force of the Austrian Social Democratic Party. Um, and his mother, Sophie, in particular, was a psychologist and a prominent sex reformer. And she was a disciple of the psychologist Alfred Adler. And she would host salons at the family home that were attended by major figures in the Social Democratic Party, um, such as Otto Bauer, Friedrich Adler, Rudolf Hilferding, and also figures like Max Adler. There were many Adlers. And Lazarsfeld's mother was particularly close to Friedrich Adler, who would quite dramatically assassinate the Austrian Prime Minister, Count Karl Sturck, in 1916 as a protest against the war, which made him a hero of the left wing of the Social Democratic Party. Now, Friedrich Adler had been a professor of physics and mathematics at, in Zurich alongside Albert Einstein. And while he was in prison for the political assassination during the war, uh, Lazarsfeld would visit him frequently and smuggle out his manuscripts of a, a monograph on relativity theory. Now, Adler at this time strongly encouraged Lazarsfeld to study mathematics, which he would eventually do. And taking up a field so important to quantitative social research was really seen by them both not only as a career path, but also as something that was closely related to the socialist cause of which they were both a part. Now, as for the so-called Austro-Marxists, which were the really the theoretical vanguard among the Austrian Social Democrats, anything even tangentially related to social science was really part of their cause. So their mentor had been Karl Grunberg, who had become the first director of the famous Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt before Max Horkheimer. Their journal, uh, Der Kampf, uh, became known for supporting modern science and the methods of social research. So just as Karl Marx himself had combined his politics uh, with his scientific approach to economic analysis, the Austro-Marxists saw empirical social research as a fundamental part of their program of reform. So unlike the dogmatic and revolutionary communists, the Austro-Marxists really saw society as a venue for progressive reforms, and empirical social research was the way to achieve it. So when the old Habsburg Empire collapsed at the end of the First World War in November of 1918, a new Austrian Republic was declared, 
And suddenly the Social Democrats found themselves in a position of newfound power, especially in Vienna, where they became such a dominant force in interwar politics and culture that that city at the time would become known as Red Vienna, which would be literally remade uh, physically and ideologically in a progressive vision of uh, social democracy. Now, at this time, Friedrich Adler was released from prison and he became a key figure in the party leadership. So all of this background would end up being a, a boon to Wasserstelt. Having been virtually raised by the leaders of the Social Democratic Party, he was deeply involved in the socialist youth movement, which was really the entirety of his social life. His two closest friends in the movement were Hans Seisel and Maria Yehoda, who would become his close collaborators in social research, and uh, Yehoda would become his first wife. Lazarsfeld went on to complete his PhD in mathematics in 1925 at the University of Vienna. And after teaching for a time in a gymnasium or a high school, he would begin attending lectures by Karl and Charlotte Bühler, the husband and wife psychologists who had founded the Psychological Institute at the university. The Social Democrats had supported the Institute as a, a center for empirical social research that examined the social development and education of the child. The Bueller's were also known for their study of action. It was called Handlung. Now, this is essentially the study of why people do th the things that they do and make the choices they make, and how the combination of environmental and psychological influences combine to produce a decision or an action. Now, this was a topic this topic was a source of fashion, fascination for Lazarsfeld. So it was in this context that Lazarsfeld came upon his characteristic combination of socialist commitment and empirical social research. He happened to attend a speech given by a socialist youth leader who referred to a survey of some 2,000 workers, which this speaker used merely for the anecdotes about the workers' hardship. But Lazarsfeld saw the potential for something else. The sample was large enough that it lent itself to quantitative analysis that might illuminate social facts and not just isolated anecdotes. Lazarsfeld uh, managed to get a hold of this survey, and with the help of his friends from the socialist youth organizations, he completed what he called a second-order statistical analysis which he would present in Charlotte Bueller's seminar on youth psychology. Bueller was sufficiently impressed that Lazarsfeld was then invited to give a course on statistics and survey research, which he would go on to teach regularly. And were it not for his Jewish heritage, Lazarsfeld might have gone on to a typical career as a professor, but because of the entrenched anti-Semitism of the university, that course was virtually precluded for him. So instead, he would pursue another course. And he was helped by a tip from one of his students who had been hired by an American soap manufacturer to conduct a survey on the use of its product. In this new concept, this new idea of market research, something that was really not known in Austria at the time, Lazarsfeld saw what he called the perfect convergence. Because he felt this was really the way to finance research projects through commercial contracts. And meanwhile, he could pursue the very question that interested him, 
why people do the things they do and make the choices they make. So whatever the substance of the decision was really less interesting to Wasserfeld than the psychology of how it happened. It was, he said, the methodological equivalence of socialist voting and the buying of soap. This is a nice summation of it that he uh, remarks upon in his autobiography. So, with the help of Carl Bueller, Lazarusville will go on to found an, a new kind of economic psychological research center. And then his German name is just Forschungsstelle. And that was around 1928, um, which he would lead for the next several years and which would produce dozens of market research studies. So it was officially independent, but sort of vaguely associated with the university. This Forschungsstelle um, was mostly staffed by Lazarsfeld's underemployed friends from the socialist movement, who became a veritable factory of researchers on all kinds of quotidian topics, from chocolate consumption to radio listening. Now, Lazarsfeld didn't see this kind of work as a betrayal to the socialist cause. These are studies of the lives of ordinary people, and for that reason, of interest to progressive social reformers. So this Forschungsstelle did mostly commercial studies, but they also did some contract work on empirical studies for Max Horkheimer's Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, which would become a, a regular collaborator with Lazarsfeld. Lazarsfeld and his researchers refined their methods, which would later be codified by Hans Seitzel in a famous book on survey research methods called Say It With Figures. Now, in the early 1930s, on the suggestion of Otto Bauer, the head of the Social Democratic Party, the researchers at the Forschungsstelle took on what would be their most famous study, the study of the unemployed in the village of Mariental. Seisel and Maria, Maria Hoda were Lazarsfeld's main collaborators on this study. Now, Bauer and the Social Democrats had hoped to find a revolutionary, anti-capitalist fervor among the unemployed, but what they actually found was a prevalent condition of what they called resignation among the unemployed, which turn, it turned out made them all the more susceptible to Nazi propaganda, which was by that time making headway in Austria. So Lazarsfeld would present his, the findings of this study at a psychology conference in 1932 in Copenhagen, which really won him respect among the community of social researchers in Europe and the U.S., and it would be key to his winning a Rockefeller Fellowship to the U.S. in 1933. Knowing that his professional opportunities were severely limited because of anti-Semitism in Austria, Charlotte Bueller was really key in helping Lazarsfeld to get this opportunity that established his future career path in the U.S. When Lazarsfeld came to America, what was the new intellectual and institutional environment he found here? And in what ways was his work, at least initially, continuous with what he had done in Austria, and how did it change? In the U.S., Lazarsfeld was really greatly helped by Robert Lind, um, the Columbia University sociologist who um, is really known for his Middletown study of Muncie, Indiana, which he did with his collaborator and wife, Helen. Now, this had been an important inspiration for Lazarsfeld as a community study. So it had inspired his own Marienthal study. Robert Lind was attracted to Lazarsfeld 
as an innovative social researcher, but also as someone with a socialist background and a real commitment to social reform, which is something that Lynn shared. Lazarsfeld happened to arrive in 1932, right at the beginning of Roosevelt's New Deal. So this was a time of extraordinary social experimentation in the US. And it was really just the right context for Lazarsfeld. And he really eagerly embraced this spirit of reform. And indeed, while he was on the Rockefeller Fellowship, Lazarsfeld would work on projects for New Deal agencies like the Federal Emergency Relief Administration for which he worked on studies of the unemployed, as he had done with the Marienthal study. Now, Lazarsfeld's methods of cross-tabulation would reveal data that other researchers had missed. So, for example, whilst other researchers had seen a correlation between lower education and high unemployment, they had failed to notice that younger people were also generally more educated. And so the determining factor in unemployment was, in fact, age, not education, um, particularly because older workers had virtually no chance of being rehired. So the kinds of survey research methods that Lazarsfeld and his researchers had refined in their many, many market research studies had broad applications to studies on really any topic. But at the same time that Lazarsfeld was doing these studies on the unemployed. He was also really making a splash in the world of market research in the US. So he was regularly giving talks to marketers and market researchers. And his articles in journals like the Harvard Business Review fascinated market researchers. Lazarsfeld became known for his detailed descriptions of his methods of motivation research which really followed from his studies of action in Vienna, finding out why people make the choices they make or do the things they do. What was important for Lossersfeld's method was isolating the various forces that act on the decision. So including the attributes of the commodity to be purchased, the influences from the environment, and the psychological impulses experienced by the consumer. Lazarsfeld's carefully designed, directed interviews with consumer respondents were meant to parse these various factors in the decision-making process and sort of plug them into matrices that could reveal which factors were relevant in which situations. And more importantly for marketers, which among the many elements influencing the decision could be controlled through advertising, packaging, product identity or classification, and you know, many other marketing means. So only a year after his arrival in the US, Lazarsfeld was already being hailed as a kind of marketing guru in the marketing trade press. As he had done in Vienna, Lazarsfeld would also organize research organizations in the US to help him carry out his studies. Although his Rockefeller Fellowship would expire in 1935, he had by that time resolved to immigrate to the US where he had many prospects. So with rising fascism in Austria and the, the banning by the fascist party there of the Social Democratic Party, he had no viable professional future in his home country. 
and his Forschungsstelle, which Maria Yehuda had been running, was shut down by authorities, allegedly for distributing banned socialist newspapers. So, Wazersfeld, with the help of his mentor and sponsor Robert Lind, once again, uh, managed to convince the president of the University of Newark, which no longer exists, Frank Kingdon, president of that university, Wazersfeld convinced him to let him set up a research center there in the fall of uh, 1935, thought to be a kind of new and innovative thing that might help to promote the university. So there, Lazarsfeld directed at Newark, he directed survey research, and the analysis of his questionnaires was often related to topics that were of great concern in the Depression, especially unemployment. Many of his researchers at Newark were themselves relief students, sponsored by the National Youth Administration, which was another New Deal program. And Lazarsfeld at this time would also continue his collaborations with Horkheimer's uh, Institute of Social Research, that so-called Frankfurt School, which by this time was also in exile at Columbia University. When Lazarsfeld had been directing the Newark Center for only about a year, he was approached by John Marshall, who was the director of humanities at the Rockefeller Foundation, and also by Hadley Cantrell, a communications scholar and the founder of the journal Public Opinion Quarterly. They were interested in setting up a new radio research project, which would become the Office of Radio Research, officially. And Lazarsfeld would direct it, along with his co-director, Frank Stanton, who was a researcher at CBS, the broadcasting company, um, who would later become its longtime president. Lazarsfeld ran this radio research project from Newark, his Newark Research Center, for a couple of years, before moving into Columbia University in 1939, when he was appointed as a professor in the sociology department, once again helped by Robert Lynch, the sociology professor there. Now, the Radio Research Project, as it is usually referred to, became a really important study, uh, a center for early communications research, and it conducted many important studies on a range of topics such as a series of studies on radio serials, or what came to be known as soap operas, by Hertha Herzog, another Austrian emigre, and an important collaborator of Lazarsfeld, and in fact, his second wife. In fact, many of Lazarsfeld's old friends and colleagues from Vienna, as emigres fleeing Nazi persecution, would end up working for one of Lazarsfeld's research organizations. One of these people was the, the famous Frankfurt School critical theorist Theodore Adorno, who uh, worked on a number of studies on music on the radio for Lazarsfeld. Now, this is a rather famous story of their conflict. It's been told many times, and I won't get into it, all the details, but suffice it to say that Lazarsfeld's quantitative research methods and willingness to work on contracts for commercial clients didn't really sit so well with Adorno. After the radio research project went to Columbia, and as Lazarsfeld joined the sociology faculty there, the research center would be rechristened as the Bureau of Applied Social Research, which Lazarsfeld would oversee for several years along with his co-director, Robert Merton. And Lazarsfeld's bureau would continue to develop methods of social research, taking commercial and government contracts, uh, really any source of financing that presented an interesting problem and an opportunity to practice and develop 
research methods, which is really what Lazarsfeld was interested in. As Lazarsfeld became well-known and established at Columbia as a sociologist, how did his work in social research and in market research specifically impact the study of post-war America? So much of what we know about market research today, really even as lay observers who may have watched a few episodes of Mad Men, so much of that is it's in some way indebted to Lossersfeld and his research organizations. It's quite remarkable. Um, I've already talked a little about motivation in research, but consider something like the focus group we hear about today as a method of consumer research. This is actually a conflation, and some might say a bastardization, of two methods developed in Lossersfeld's research centers. The first was called the focused interview, whereby an interviewer would focus the attention of a respondent or a group of respondents on a particular situation or media stimulus upon which the interviewer had already performed a content analysis. So the idea was to distinguish between what the quote-unquote objective facts of the media content were relative to the subjective definitions or what they called the private logics of respondents were. Now, another one of Lazarsfeld's favorite methods was called the panel. And it was a technique whereby a group of respondents would be repeatedly interviewed on a particular subject at regular intervals over time, really to see how their, their views had changed or not changed over time. Now, this was originally developed in 19, a 1940 study on voting in a presidential election. Later, that would be published as the People's Choice. And this technique, the panel technique, would be used in many other studies done by Lossesfeld's Bureau. So what we know as the focus group, I think, is sort of a mashup of these two techniques. But it probably lacks some of the methodological rigor that Lossesfeld would have applied in most cases. But these panel and interview techniques and the way they were categorized, tabulated and analyzed using the methods that Hans Deisel describes in that book that I mentioned, uh, State with Figures, were really hugely influential in the field of market research, along with Lazarsfeld's insights into motivation research, why people make the choices they make and do, they do the things that they do. Also, I would say that Lazarsfeld is known for his innovations in survey research, how to ask the right questions that will produce meaningful results, and really how to interpret those results, and how to get a representative sample of the population. Lazarsfeld, by the way, was a close friend and collaborator of the famous pollster George Gallup. Lazarsfeld would become a really major figure in the field of communications studies, and he is especially remembered for a, a 1955 book he published with Elihu Katz called Personal Influence, which is based on a series of studies done in the 1940s in Decatur, Illinois, which were led by C. Wright Mills, the famous sociologist. The main finding of the study was that the effects of media communication are not so direct as have been thought. Instead, there is a distinct social element to all mass communication and figures that they called opinion leaders were present in every community, filtering information from the mass media and interpreting it 
for their social group or followers. Now this is known as the limited effects paradigm or the two-step flow of communication. And it became very influential, as I said, in this field of communications research. And what's remarkable to me is that I think it has striking resonances with the social media of today and the way in which people are motivated to think a certain way based on what's prevalent in their sort of social media cohorts. Looking back now, how would you describe Lazarfeld's role in the history of the human sciences in America? I think Lazarsfeld had an important impact, especially in getting the human sciences to move beyond a kind of rigid behaviorism that put questions of the um, inner workings of the mind to the side as inaccessible to the methods of empirical social research. Jamie Cohen Cole has written a really great book called The Open Mind, which is about the ways that uh, cognitive science challenged behaviorism in the Cold War period when um, a liberal consensus rejected the almost stimulus response way of looking at things that behaviorism seemed to promote. Now, I think Lazarsfeld was really part of challenging that behaviorist paradigm, particularly with his insights on motivation research. Now, this is a little bit ironic, given the way that he is often remembered as moving the social sciences toward an excessive quantification of everything from which they have never recovered in view of some. And this was essentially C. Wright Mills's criticism of Lazarsfeld. But in many ways, I would say that that critique was a bit opportunistic and disingenuous. So having worked so closely with Lazarsfeld for many years, Mills certainly benefited from Lazarsfeld's methods of organized survey research. In fact, that experience would be the basis for his famous book, White Collar, which really made Mills's name as a social critic and trenchant observer of American social structures. But Mills put his leftist commitments first as a sociologist, while Lossersfeld was, first and foremost, committed to empirical social research. And he was really true to the results of his surveys, no matter what the results. And that was really a lesson he had learned early on with the Marienthal study, the results of which quite, you know, really displeased its socialist backers. So I have some sense that, at least in some leftist circles, Mills is still celebrated as the committed scholar, while Lazarsfeld is sort of seen as the one who sold out to corporations. But I would propose that another way to look at it is that Lazarsfeld was really committed to his methods, whereas Mills was a bit more committed to his self-identification as a certain kind of renegade academic, um, which he would privilege to the res actual results of his research. Lazarsfeld is, as I suggested, critica often criticized for his excessively quantitative techniques. Mills called it abstracted empiricism. But really the idea was that by analyze it, analyzing the data drawn from social research, patterns would be revealed that might not be so readily apparent. And this was the idea by, behind Lazarsfeld's technique, which he called latent structure analysis. It's a bit complicated. But the idea is that it's, it's thought to analyze the ways in which social conditions might manifest in certain behaviors. I think Lazarsfeld's genius was really in the way that he combined qualitative and quantitative social research 
in methods like this to reveal patterns. I mean, really the problem with qualitative research is that it's super complex and super abundant. I mean, quantifying instead of like putting numbers on things, what it's actually doing is reducing or distilling this kind of infinite data that you have from qualitative research into an essence that can be understood, sorted, and managed. So this is the kind of method that allowed Lossersfeld to make connections between social phenomena that really others had missed. Also, I think that uh, Lossersfeld's experience shows that social research, if it is sincerely executed, is not necessarily corrupted by its backers, whomever they may be. Certainly, these backers may be in search of a specific result, but if the researcher is honest about their methods and the results, you know, even corporate-sponsored research can produce meaningful results. Well, we've mostly talked about Paul Lazarsfeld today, but looking at all three of your subjects, including Gruen and Maholi Naj, what is your view about the historical relationship between socialism and capitalism in America? Ultimately, I think of the Cold War ideological divide between the U.S. and the Soviet Union really precluded clear thinking on what constituted capitalism and what constituted socialism and what the distinctions were between these two systems. And really the many ways in which capitalism or capitalist entrepreneurs, at least, gobbled up any good idea that was available, including many ideas that had basically socialist origins. Now, there are, of course, uh, important differences between these two systems, but we, I think we often think about them in overly binary ways that don't really appreciate the considerable overlap between them and the extent to which they borrowed ideas from each other. Now, in the case of Lazarsfeld and also the architect Victor Grun and the artist designer Laszlo Mahalinaj, who are the other main figures in my book, in this, these cases, negotiating between these two systems could be awkward, but at the same time, I think socialist ideas had much to offer in the American capitalist marketplace. To take one example from the career of the architect Victor Gruen, another Viennese socialist who grew up in precisely the same milieu as Lossersfeld and ended up basically inventing this suburban regional shopping center in the form we know today. In that interwar period of Red Vienna that I mentioned earlier, one of the major public works projects at that time was a, a huge initi initiative to build public housing in Vienna. Now, these projects were known as the Gemeindebauten. So Gruen's formative years as an architect were during this period, and the idea of the Gemeindebauten was that you could build environments that could induce certain kinds of values, social patterns, and beneficial interactions. So for the Social Democrats of Vienna, the idea was to produce socialist values. And I would say they were, they were remarkably successful at this. If you compare those interwar Gemeindebauten to Gruen's post-war shopping centers, they are in many ways remarkably similar, not only in their physical form, as they're both centered around interior courtyards or malls, but just in the very idea that you could create a space that would create community and instill certain kinds of values. The new suburbs in the U.S. at that time had no community center at all, and Gruen's idea was to create one, and a carless, walkable, pedestrian space at that. The slight irony here, of course, is that the value is meant to be imported on the shopping center visitor, 
we're a touch more consumerist than socialist. Still, if one takes a um, Keynesian view of consumption, and if one considers that the suburbs were desperately in need of community centers, these shopping malls had something socialist to them after all. At least that's my argument. In the case of the artist designer Mahoney Naj, here was another committed socialist from the old Habsburg Empire, who, after having been trained in the German Bauhaus tradition, under, right under its founder and his close friend Walter Gropius, found himself as an exile from the Nazi terror, first in London and then in Chicago, where he had Gropius's blessing to reestablish the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus, having been formed in the wake of World War I, was a remarkably optimistic and forward-looking institution, the idea of which was to combine art and industry to produce useful products and buildings that would be enjoyed by the masses of ordinary people. We, I think, tend to have a view of the Bauhaus as a sort of bourgeois thing, and indeed that sort of aesthetic with its lack of artifice, it's now often referred to as mid-century modern, that kind of thing, it doesn't necessarily look like something that was meant for everyone. But in fact, there was no aesthetic program at the Bauhaus. It was all about the mass production of useful things that were not for an elite, but were for everyone. They could take any form. But the lack of artifice had more to do with ease of mass production than anything else. So although he had a difficult time in Chicago, Maholi, who he was often referred to as just Maholi, he worked tirelessly to reproduce um, the Bauhaus in the U.S. And he, ha he had the help of a patron, the, the president of the Container Corporation, Walter Pepke. Now, Pepke was an industrialist of this box manufacturer, really, but he was also a kind of progressive, I mean, whether he saw himself that way or not. And he helped to create the conditions that made a new Bauhaus school possible in the U.S. And there, these collaborative experimental methods of the Bauhaus, which Maholi faithfully reproduced in the U.S., were, I would say, essentially socialistic in the utopian view that high-quality manufactured goods could be enjoyed by everyone. And there was not a contradiction the school was so eagerly embraced by an industrialist. The idea was to produce new and useful things. And it didn't matter if there were some socialist ideas behind this kind of production and innovation. So ultimately, I think that the Cold War experience really entrenched a kind of binary thinking when it comes to capitalism and socialism, when in truth, both had progressive and regressive elements to them. So what really fascinates me about these three figures, and really the reason I put them together in a book, is that they were each able to negotiate so fluently between these two worlds and this great ideological divide that perhaps wasn't so great after all. When they encountered ideological resistance, their impulse wasn't to retreat into an ideological corner, but to search for a, a progressive common ground through their work. Thank you, Joseph. It's a fascinating and very interesting book. Thank you for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thank you very much for having me. Joseph Malherrick's book is Free Market Socialists, European Emigres Who Made Capitalist Culture in America, 1918 to 1968. You can download a free ebook or purchase a print version from the Central European University Press. You can find more resources on this topic as well as others at chstm.org. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine.